This episode of the podcast has been brought to you by PK Lures. PK Lures is a fantastic company. We're really excited to be partnered with them. If you guys are fishermen and you're serious fishermen, you want to take out good quality equipment with you when you go. And I can vouch for PK Lures. I've been fishing them since about 2008. And they make some of the best ice fishing lures hands down on the market, as well as some incredible options for open water fishing. I got a master anglerfish on a PK lure here not very long ago. I mean, they have options, again, through the ice, open water. If you're fishing open water, one of my favorites is the PK Spinajig. Definitely give that a try. Their new next generation Ridgeline Crank works really well for trolling. And then, of course, through the ice, my two favorites, hands down, the PK Spoon and the PK Flutterfish. So definitely go check them out. They're at pklure.com. Again, that's pklure.com. And make sure to tell them that you heard about PK from Radcast Outdoors. Go have fun fishing, everyone. Fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill, fresh from the outdoors. Fresh from the airport. Yes. Very airport. fresh from the airport. <laughs> but we're here with you, been on the road again, you know, bow spidering it up and moving around and having lots of fun, but losing lots of sleep. Losing sleep and having fun. Sounds like a good time. And you've been busy with Bow Spider, very busy as of late with the holidays and everything. And so we're going to talk a little bit of Bow Spider and a little bit of whitetail hunting today. How's that sound? That's fun. It's ironic that most people in in the hunting community, their walls filled with whitetail. And they're like, oh man, I'd love to go do X or Y or Z. David's the opposite. <laughs> David's done X, Y, and Z. And he's like, I really have this hole in my wall. I need a whitetail. I'd never, you know, Wyoming whitetail are prolific, but we don't have a ton of giants walking around. Yeah, unless you're hanging out in the northeast side of the state, there's really not a lot of huge whitetail bucks running around, but you've got just about everything else on your wall, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I've been trying. So tell me about it and kind of what spurred it along with Bow Spider and kind of how it came to be. You know, so it's been, we've been very blessed, had a great year, product is doing well had a couple clients reach out and say, hey, we got this annual trip going on. Why don't you come go? And I I hemmed and hawed about it and said, you know, I don't know, you know, expense was one and two was just time, timing, time away from work, time off. You know, it seems like these days, if I take, I take two days off, I come back to six days worth of work. If I don't take those two days off, I don't have six days of work, you know, and it's, we're not talking catch up. We're just talking six days extra work. So, you know, I finally committed and my beautiful bride, she, uh, she stepped up and took care of things while I was gone, which makes, makes it all the easier to be gone. But, you know, like that Alaska hunt, we had a Delorme in reach and then a sat phone. And that's a little bit harder as a business owner to take 14 days and just leave, right? You're going to have people pretty irate that they haven't heard from you. (laughs) In our today's society, you don't get to just unplug for 14 days and walk away. And unfortunately, that's for me, part of the lure of some of these bigger trips is, you know, like we've talked about before, day one, day two, you're still in normal day routine. I get up at X and I do all this stuff and you kind of, it takes a little while for your brain to get away from digital mode and into nature mode. Day three, day four, day five, it just 
pure nature mode and you just you eat and sleep and move with the sun in the game and it's fun and you don't have that daily pressure of oh crap I got to be here for the kids and oh I got to get over there and I got to get this email done and I got to make that phone call and we got to pick this up and oh by the way this just happened and I got to run over there and help this person that that on a hunt doesn't you know it's just this is the task that needs to be accomplished and we're going to work at it until we're done which is fun for me but that's it's a little bit different of a balancing act when you go on these shorter trips with technology I mean I catch myself having to say no I'm here to enjoy watching the squirrel worry about that email but I have to stay on top of it every day so we'd get back from hunts on this this particular trip I went with like I said two bow spider clients they invited me out and we paid a trespass fee to go on some private land and we looked at some private and go on some private areas and they hunt some public while we're there they can and they do and we looked at the public areas as a kind of secondary backup to we're gonna hunt this private ranch for a little while and paid the trespass fee to just it was just a farmer's trespass fee to hunt on his land they picked me up down in rock springs i I hitchhiked down to rock springs and (laughs) they picked me up on the interstate and we drove through the night it's from here to Missouri is 18 hour drive so we got in about oh three o'clock in the morning and got up about 8 a.m should have been up at 5 a.m. and going scouting, but you got to have a couple hours of sleep, right? Well, we found a really nice buck at 8.30 in the morning. And so that particular part of the farm didn't have any tree stands, didn't have any blinds, hadn't been hunted, and we watched a buck go down in the timber. So we grabbed the self-climbing tree stands, myself and the uh, the other guy that kind of invited me along, and he sat on the uh, kind of the west side, and I sat on the south side of this timber, and we had made an agreement that, hey, we're not going to go in this small timber because they're in there bedded, and if we go walking around in there, even if we've got the wind in our favor, somebody's going to blow them out, and if we just be patient, and that's the nice thing about the private land scenario is if we be patient and stay out of that, and we're talking 60 acres of timber. I mean, you could walk through it in a couple minutes, 20 minutes, easy, but we kind of committed that, hey, we know there's good deer in there. It was just went in there. We're going to sit here for the evening and, and try and figure out where they're coming out, and then the next day, we'll either remove stands or reassess, and it was kind of neat for me to just, I looked at, I've got Onyx on my phone, and if you guys haven't heard about that and don't know about that, that's, uh, I actually hate Onyx for a couple reasons, <laughs> or base maps, or any of these, because when I first started, Patrick, you had to get maps, you had to print them yeah. out, and you had to find access or ask for access, right, and some of those little state chunks were just people drove by and thought it was private. And so you could find ways to access chunks of ground that were relatively unknown. You, you needed that local knowledge, and it took time and experience to figure out, hey, there's a whole bunch of ground right here. Nobody's hunting, and it's public ground. That's that those little tiny areas can be great shelter belts for all sorts of game, whether it's, I mean, same thing with fishing. You mm-hmm. find, find a pond on <laughs> one of those tracks of land that nobody knows about, right? It can be. So anyways, back to the hunt, we both committed to stand just, just on the edge of that timber and just basically scout and see where they'd come out for the evening. And then we'd reassess game plan. Well, lo and behold, two does come out about 200 yards up the ridge from me, skylining, and right behind them comes a buck. But those two does continue on their same compass direction. That buck got on the ridge that I was on and just snaked his way right down under my tree. Oh, man. (laughs) And there's one little fruit tree, and I had to climb a, it was a dead cottonwood tree, completely dead. And, you know, it forked about 
12 feet off the ground. I couldn't get myself climber any higher. So I'm, my feet are, you could almost reach <laughs> up and touch my feet, right? Yeah. But I've, you know, and we're talking, it was a, it was a 50 inch diameter tree or so. It was a big tree. And so that buck comes into the fruit tree underneath me. It's a little fruit tree, maybe, maybe 12 or 14 feet in height, but you know, kind of brushy. So he's either got to go to the left or the right of it to be clear so I can shoot him. He's right behind it licking on this. And I'm, I'm having a little bit of a come apart and I've never been affected that way you know, especially elk hunting, because elk hunting, we kind of set up, you bugle, you typically either know, hey, they're coming in silent, we're going to do a call set up here, or you get a response and you know they're coming. With this deer, it was just like, all of a sudden, it's here, it's appeared, I didn't know it was <laughs> happening. And then he, you know, he's coming closer and closer, and I thought he'd just kind of feed through from right to left, and I was just going to have to take a walking shot or grunt at him. But, you know, I had lanes up to the further distances, and I was prepared and ready to just Okay, he's going behind that one at 35, draw, grunt, shoot. Well, when he just kept snaking and coming, he's like 12 yards underneath me behind that tree. And he sat there for two minutes licking and scraping on that tree branch of that fruit tree. And his vitals are, I mean, his whole body's covered. I can see through the tree. There's no leaves, but there's no way you're getting an arrow through there. I mean, my heart's starting to pound a little bit. <laughs> too much time to think about it. <laughs> oh, way too much to sit there and go, okay, I want to harvest this deer. Yeah. It's within spitting distance and I'm just going to sit here now and I actually unclipped my release from my bow and went to reach for my phone to take a picture I was like this would be cool and then the back of my brain said you know what he's either going to catch movement he's going to catch shine something's going to happen and then you're going to be trying to put this phone away without dropping it and this deer is going to run off and I didn't come prepared to be filming all this that wasn't the goal so I I got my hand about eight inches away from my string and I went you know what I'll just take a picture after we shoot him. And I clipped my release back on and he, he started going to the left around that tree. And I didn't even let him clear the whole tree where the branches got thin and the, his vitals started opening up. <laughs> Dropped him, huh? <laughs> I, I put a, I used a three blade Grim Reaper expandable broadhead. And that arrow made a, I mean, <laughs> what's really funny is typically when you're shooting in a tree stand, you get a pretty high entrance and you get a pretty low exit in the body cavity, right? Mm -hmm. But you're still going through the center of the vitals. Because I was so low and he was uphill of me just a little bit, right? That arrow pretty much went straight through him. <laughs> I mean, there was like an inch difference from in and out, but it went right through the top of everything it needed to. And it got crazy from there. He whirled 180 and ran back towards the timber that he just came out of. And he got in it, you know, and I could only see 20 yards. And he went about 40, 50 yards. And then all of a sudden I just heard the... You know, there's leaves all over the floor, and I could just hear somebody shaking a plastic bag in there, right? So I was pretty sure I knew what happened, but yeah. then it went dead silent. And so, you know, that's always a good thing, but it can be a bad thing, too. So I texted the other guy, and and this is at 3.30 in the afternoon. It gets dark at 5.30. I climbed that tree about 2. <laughs> so I've been sitting there <laughs> under two hours, and he's all excited. He comes over. We filmed that portion, and we'll we'll release that a little later of the recovery. But while I was sitting there texting him, hey, I just shot. Come over, and let's go track this thing. Because I was a little confident it was dead. I was pretty confident it was a great shot, but I wasn't sure. You never know. Right. Even at that kind of distance, that was I was rattled. I will admit that. But while I was sitting there, a bobcat came on his trail exactly where he came. And he got kind of right there where he turned, and the bobcat made like two zigzags and I was getting ready to, you know, get after this and Bobcat turned and went down the trail where he came from and he was gone. Mm -hmm. My buddy got over there minutes later, not a half hour later, I mean, 10, 15 minutes later. And we went and found the arrow first, completely red. That, that Grim Reaper was a, it was a little disconcerting is 
it, the Grim Reaper's got springs to keep the blades closed. Well, the blades were all closed, you know, stuck in the dirt. Well, the inertia of it hitting the dirt, the blades reclosed. Oh, okay. Or even the fletchings coming out of the body just gave sure. enough deceleration to that arrow to close the broadhead. So, I mean, and that's for some guys out there, and we'll, we'll load some pictures. The last six inches of my arrow has a white dip on it, white paint. Mm-hmm. And that's just there to tell you know, what kind of shot you made. You can tell by the color and type of blood. You can tell by, you know, sometimes the hair and other things that are on that white stretch of arrow. And if you have just a pure black shaft, it's really hard to tell. If it's, you've got a white background, you can tell, oh, this is liver, this is lung, this is guts, mm. right? So I got a picture of this arrow that's just bright red. And then we start following blood and the blood wasn't great, right? And like I said, I hit him, I wouldn't say high or low. I hit him where you needed to. It came in and out and went Right across the top of the heart. So you get both lungs and heart. That's a very lethal shot. But it was high enough in that chest cavity that there really wasn't... Sometimes you get some pretty good blood trails. And this was a couple drops. But he was full speed running. And about the time we started seeing heavier blood, I looked up around three trees and I can see white and tan laying there in the trail. And I, I got really excited. I'm not oh, going to yeah. lie. So we, we were covering him. He's, he's 145 inch, you know, nice, typical white tail. A great white tail for my first one yeah oh but that bobcat that i told you about had found him had already ripped open a hind quarter and had already consumed about a pound of meat wow in it wasn't a total of 15 minutes you know it was more than 10 but it wasn't 15 minutes from when i saw that bobcat go by to when we were on it that's it's, insane that's crazy that's insane and the coyotes they have back there, man, there was every night there'd be two or three packs howling back and forth to each other from this little creek bottom or this cornfield. And we're not talking two, you know, howling back to two. It's like a pack of six howling back to a pack of five, howling over to a pack of 10. And it's just the woods every night would erupt with those coyotes. We had them running under stands, running by us, following us around. They have a coyote infestation. Wow. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, and... So kind of compare it to elk. I mean, how does it feel as far as the difference? You talked about it a little bit, but what's what's it? What's the biggest difference between the two? So, I mean, most of the year and most of the time, the reason I hunt elk and the reason I hunt elk the way I do is because I, I want them to call. Mm-hmm. I want to locate them. They locate me, and we play this game of cat and mouse or chess. Who's ever trying to checkmate the other one? And usually both parties are using the wind. You know, you want to have the wind in your face, and that elk's going to come in. And before he wants a confrontation, he typically is going to circle and you would be surprised, Patrick, how good their hearing is. Two, three hundred yards away, they start coming and then they shut up. They will come and stand 30 yards away from where they want to be, where they heard that sound and sit there and watch. So that's one thing. I mean, all the elk hunting books say to do this, and it's been known for a long time. In a caller shooter scenario in elk hunting, you typically have somebody calling the elk. And then depending on the type of terrain, 20, 40, 50, 60, maybe even 100 yards away, you place a shooter out there where the elk typically wants to come stop and he wants to see other elk before he comes closer. Well, now as the shooter, you have an elk a yard away. It, it makes it fun. But if you're the caller and you don't move, so you can you can kind of do this on your own if you don't have a, a caller to call for you. Make a couple cow calls, walk forward 20, 30 yards, and then stand there for five, 10 minutes very quietly. And if you kind of got a hill that drops away, you can call down the hill and then walk up on top. And that elk is going to come in and want to look and see, hey, where's these other, they're, they're a herd animal. They want to group yeah. up. And the, the whitetail is, 
they don't typically majority of the year roam like an elk does. They kind of eat, live, sleep, breathe, die. One patch of timber, one field, and they move between them and have a water source. Now, all of a sudden, the rut turns on, and they're, <laughs> they'll be two counties away if they want to be. But they'll be doing that all day long, you know, and what they're doing is they're just cruising those main trails, sniffing for does that are in heat. So sitting in some of those high travel areas is a really good tactic for whitetail because they don't know you're there. They're not alerted, you know, and you've got deer cruising by pretty often. So I was tagged out day one, right? (laughs) And we're committed to, I've driven over there with those other guys. And I was like, you know what? I'm now cameraman for the next couple days. And I have video the last morning, you know, there we were tired of, teaming up so i was like i'm gonna scout some stands for i'm coming back next year i had that much fun i'm like hey can i come back do this again next year so i wanted to go sit and see some other stands and scout some stuff well one of the stands i sat in had two decent eight points a half hour after daylight walk in the trail that i walked into the tree stand i'm sitting right on a right on a ditch line that's got a pond behind me 30 yards and it's the water source and it's on either side of two soybean fields so i'm down in the brush and those bucks come underneath my stand and have a Mexican standoff for about 10 minutes doing like a yin-yang revolving (laughs) circling circling each other and kind of posturing. And the one had tore about a two-inch wide, six or eight-inch long strip of his hide out of his neck fighting with other ones. Those bucks are, Mm -hmm. I mean, and so he's got this big nasty gash on his neck. Now it's, it looked as, it appeared as if it was drying and healing and, you know, those guys have a big thick neck for a reason right so, so was it kind of like a scene out of tombstone with you know Wyatt Earp and oh yeah <laughs> they were and what I think it was is you know the the buck that had his neck tore was slightly smaller in body and antler size and he kind of recognized that otherwise like yeah that's the one that kicked my butt yesterday and <laughs> after they circled each other once or twice he he quietly walked off yeah it was really funny as I got to rib the other guys that were with me as they're not seeing Jack, and I'm like just sending him pictures <laughs> of these two shooter bucks having a standoff underneath my stand. But oh man, it's just it was fun to the squirrels, the sunrises. Had some cold days, had some warm days. Uh, the birds, birds were really cool. You know, I took a few, took my camera along, so I was taking some pictures of woodpeckers, and you know they've got some big squirrels over there, and yeah. Man, the one thing I will say is a deer walks under your stand, it makes hardly any noise. Squirrel comes through and it sounds like a <laughs> Mack truck. That, mm-hmm. It gets a, uh, it's really interesting though. We'd get in the stands about a half hour, 45 minutes, four daylight every day. And they had a couple trail cameras. So we were getting to see pictures and activity. And the one corner that we predominantly sat in after I harvested my buck to harvest another one, the bigger buck was cruising through about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. He's just running this whole fence line checking for hot does and then i don't know but he went by three mornings at about that time but you know you're sitting there at 5 36 and it's just dead quiet and then a couple owls will go off and that's in the spring the turkeys would start going off we never heard the turkeys but then a couple birds and then a couple squirrels and the forest just slowly wakes up in the morning and you're sitting there as the sun finally starts to crest and it gets daylight well i think in the the whole week we were there i saw about 25 bucks which is a that's awesome. Yeah, now, that's really good. Not all of them were within shooting distance, and some were just a glimpse, but it's really neat to just go out there and watch these deer. And I got to where if you find one deer, watch that deer's body posture, especially what they're doing with their ears and their nose and head. But even are they stiff and stomping and really 
you know, stiff-legged walking, or they just calm feet are moving pretty lucid and they're just kind of picking along feeding. If they're in between those two and kind of looking behind them and then maybe feeding or looking in front for scanning and then look behind them and kind of, you'll know there's more deer from wherever they came from following them. They're kind of waiting for their group, right? Kind of like a little kid running around the playground. Can I go over here, daddy? And making sure you're there. If they're all by themselves, they don't, I mean, they really don't spend a lot of time looking behind them. They're just scanning for predators in front of them. They move a little bit. They scan. Occasionally they'll glimpse back, but they're not looking back, waiting for something. So a lot of times you can, I've, with deer or with elk, I've found either other animals or predators or something or other hunters by paying attention to, you know, what they're doing. And even, even horses, you'd be amazed. I know you, I know you and horses are not friends, Patrick, (laughs) but you know, I'll have my horse tied up or we're sitting there having lunch or something. And all of a sudden the horse goes from just kind of, you know, half asleep to hundred percent ears and eyes, nose focused on something over there. And you can get up and sometimes it's another elk moving through or a deer or a predator or a hunter. It's, it's amazing to me because I can't hear or see anything, but that horse knows something's there. Yeah. And by the way, I really don't have anything against horses. It's just their dander has everything against me. <laughs> it kills me, man. No, that's great. You know, you talked about the kind of immersing yourself in nature for a few days and just sitting back and watching and observing everything that's going on. And I think that's one of the things I enjoy the most about fishing is doing that same thing. You know, there'll be times where, you know, you go sit on a bank somewhere and you sit there all day or, if even if you're in a boat and you're just watching as you're fishing along and you see all these different, you know, birds and antelope deer, whatever, and you kind of observe what they're doing, how they interact socially. Like, you know, I've seen one of the really cool things around Boyson is just watching antelope play run around together and the way that they watch everything and how they move. And you do this a lot with hunting. So I bet it was a really cool experience being in a different place than Wyoming and watching different animals do different things oh yeah i've been wanting to go whitetail hunting for years and years and years and not not that we don't have whitetail here but i wanted to go tree stand big timber whitetail hunting what everybody traditionally thinks about yes yeah i've never done that before (laughs) (laughs) i mean just haven't done it haven't had the opportunity we live in wide open wyoming so it's kind of different i mean i've set up on some sagebrush knobs and this and that looking for whitetails but I'm not putting a tree stand up a Russian olive. It's not happening. <laughs> well, you don't like thorns and getting cut up, and no. bleeding out on your way up? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. So, yeah, we got to see deer, got to interact, you know, got to harvest one. We're staying in a lodge with all these other guys and, you know, kind of getting hauled out and dropped off to different stands. And I took the heart one night. And uh, Oh, yeah, I want to hear about this. So, you know, the, I think it was the second or the third night after I harvest the deer, we'd, we'd I was like, hey, I'm going to cook heart tonight. And I quickly whipped up some uh, Idaho instant potatoes, opened a can of vegetables. Those are pretty self-explanatory. Made a little brown gravy. And the heart, I sliced relatively thin. I wouldn't say paper thin, but I'd say under a quarter inch, as as thin as I could. Yeah, and tell everybody why you cut it thin. So you're going to bread it, and you're going to fry it, and you want to get it cooked evenly quickly. Because you don't want to dry that thing out. It's And people are like, ooh, Oregon heart. I'll, I'll tell you, I've tried liver several times. <laughs> I've tried. I'll, heart is not liver. <laughs> heart is not liver. Uh, let's make it pretty easy. The heart is on the, in the, on the clean side of the diaphragm. And it's a muscle. 
It's a muscle that, you know, has worked really good. Liver is uh, the cigarette filter on the dirty side <laughs> of the diaphragm. Cleans out all the nasty stuff. I, I've tried it, and I just tell tell you right now, I am not a fan. But back to the heart. So I put it in an egg wash, cooked it a lot like we cook fish. Sure. Put it in a, a, a flour with seasoning and, you know, just a high mountain seasoning, and then put it back in the egg wash a second time, right? So, but because... It's meat, not fish. The egg barely sticks to the meat, but yep. that will help that flour stick a little bit, right? And then you go from the flour back to the egg to get more egg on it to make a better breading. And that's a good point. Like when you're making chicken fried steak, I like to do a venison, you know, venison steaks. That's a really good way to do it just because you get more of that coating on there to crisp it up really good for you. Yep. And then I just, on the stove or in a pan, put some, you know, just an eighth inch of oil, whatever oil, but we, and cook it on medium, not high, not low, but medium to high, a minute or two on each side, right? You want it cooked true. You don't want it red anymore. And, you know, I did take it in the sink and the heart's going to be full of blood. I mean, it's the pump, right? Yep. And washed it out as best I could. But after I sliced it, I actually washed each piece off again to get those blood clots off there. And I'm sure they probably fine, but I'm a little particular, so, but I mean, serve that up with some potatoes and gravy and some vegetables and sounds good. It was, everybody wanted more. And there was a couple guys in camp that are like, man, I, I've never taken one ever. That's not food. I'm like, eh, you're missing out, my friend. So that's how I cooked the heart. And at the same time, I took a, one small chunk of backstrap just because there's five guys and one deer heart that not quite enough protein to feed everybody. So I uh, sliced the, uh, I took about a five inch chunk of backstrap and sliced it, not all the way through, about three quarters of the way through, right? Like a butterfly. Yep. Like a butterfly. Put cream cheese, jalapenos, uh, seasoned the outside and then wrapped it in bacon and took each piece of bacon and uh, toothpicked it closed into the meat, right? So mm -hmm. I've made a little Swedish log out of this backstrap. It sounds amazing. It's it's absolutely my favorite thing to do. Oh man! And you put that on the barbecue again, not low heat, not high heat, but you. I mean, and if I had to pick a degree, probably four hundred degrees, not six hundred, but not two fifty, sure. right? And that takes a little bit longer. And I don't like to put it right on the flames. I like to put it higher up in you know up in the top of the grill. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of getting more of that induction heat cooking from everywhere, not just from the bottom. Yeah. But you do want to cook it till the bacon seared and the cream cheese starts oozing out from the middle. Once you've done that, you know, venison, you can eat it pink in the middle and you're, you're safe. Sure. You're not going to get, cause there's no bacteria that's had time to really get in there and make you sick. Yeah. And you don't want to overcook it either. Cause then it's like no. shoe leather. No. And so that's the idea with that bacon wrapped around the outside is you're protecting it from the heat to, to dry it out too fast. And the cream cheese kind of mm -hmm. permeates all the way through mm -hmm. the middle, but you, you gotta have the jalapenos in there, Patrick. Oh dude, you don't have to convince me of that. I love jalapenos. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, it's basically like one big jalapeno popper. Mm. And then you slice that again thin. You know, I wouldn't go quite as thin. I'd go quarter inch on that. Maybe even you can go up to half an inch. Right? Mm -hmm. And then you just dig in on that. And boy, oh boy. That sounds really good. And it's almost supper time. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I mean, it's a little more work. It takes a little more prep time. But that is, I mean, both are not an easy clean prep you know it's not just take it out of the bag you're gonna have to get your hands dirty you're gonna have to get a cutting board dirty to prep these dishes but it's not rocket science so we ate that i mean every night we'd kind of sit around and tell stories of who saw what and show pictures and look at trail cam pictures and this was a uh, over election 
week. Mm -hmm. I left two days before the election. And I'm really glad that I was just, (laughs) while all the pandemonium and chaos and uncertainty was going on, I turned my phone off and sat there and watched deers and squirrels and rabbits. That sounds like a good idea. It was really funny. The night of the election, I went fishing just because I'm like, I just would rather be out where it's quiet and went and hammered on some walleyes because, I mean, that's way more enjoyable than worrying about who's going to be the next this or that, whether it be president or whatever. So that's smart. So you got the whitetail off the list, and obviously you enjoyed it, so you're going back. So you're going to fit this in sometime, I'm assuming, this next fall with everything else you got going on. So we, we've reserved with the with the ranch the same the same week, you know, for next year already. And I'm, you know, after, you know, I took, the first nice legitimate great buck i saw and i mean there's guys that hunt for years and don't get an opportunity on a buck like that i realize that fortunate and blessed and thankful that i get to go do that but i shot the smaller buck that was in that timber so you're gonna hopefully go get a bigger one <laughs> but the goal is and you know uh, one of our listeners will will laugh he's gone hunting with me once or twice but you know i'm pretty known for being an elk snob right a small raghorn coming on my like, yeah, we can do better let's leave, let that one grow mm-hmm but there's something ingrained in me from growing up deer hunting with my dad where we went one weekend that you see a deer, you shoot it, or you go home without a deer. It's just, that's the way it was, you know, and I get it, I understand it, but that's still a little bit, the last couple times I've gone mule deer hunting here in Wyoming, <laughs> a four-point steps out, I'm like, that's a four-point, we better shoot it right now. Yep. So year before last, I spent five days rifle mule deer hunting, and I held out and just watched pucks and held out and just looked, and I, I harvested a pretty dang good buck, Patrick. That's good. And so this next time when I go back, and you have to be prepared to eat the tag, right? <laughs> and that's, that's if you're, you know, if you're looking more for a protein fill the freezer hunt, get a cow elk tag or get an any deer tag. And I'm by no means shaming anybody for doing that. I do that all the time. Yeah, protein's important. Protein's super important. And that's, again, <laughs> the reason I'm going is, is the camaraderie, the camp, the fun, and some protein but as you start to get more and more tags, right, then you can start to get a little more selective. And yeah, yeah. So I'm hopefully going to go back and get a get a get an opportunity to to try it again. And maybe that maybe nobody got that bigger buck that was in that timber. There's a good chance he's still walking around because those big bucks don't get big by being stupid. So you know, one thing I will say that made it pretty interesting is nobody had been down in that 200 acre farm all season, and so. Instead of us just going through there gung-ho, we barely encroached just to the perimeter, set up. Nobody, nothing knew that we were there, and they were still in their pattern and routine and came right out. If we'd gone tromping through there, they would have changed routines or changed bedding areas. I mean, you don't, yeah, yeah. with any species, I mean, same thing with fish. You don't want to get on there when... <laughs> you know, get on their beds and scare them out of there and they won't be back. If you can get out to where they go feeding and leave their bedding area alone, you know, you run your boat motor troller right over the the reed bed of these bigger fish that you're targeting. They're going to do the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that happens every summer, you know, when we're out walleye fishing and we're at a spot where we're doing well and somebody takes a jet ski over the spot, it's usually fouled up for a while. You know, they'll scatter and they'll come back. It can mess things up for a little bit. So I Definitely understand that philosophy. Now, with turkeys, that can be to your advantage, especially fall turkeys. I mean, I've heard a lot of guys in some states, you got to check legality, but break the flock up. Some places, they take a dog out and let the dog run out and chase them. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go 
break them up right there and get them to scatter in three or four, you know, scatter to the winds, set a decoy up and set right down right there. An hour or two later, they're all going to come back and they're like, hey, we all got to meet here again so we can go where we are going. <laughs> meet at the rendezvous point. <laughs> yes, you're already there. That doesn't work so well with mature yeah. deer bedded in the timber. No, so, probably not. But the other philosophy is, you know, by us hunting that same tree stand day after day after day, those deer got to the point where they were used to human smell right yep. there on the trail, and they start walking down the trail because they're like, oh, I've been here for three days and smelling the same thing. Well, you and know? when they're not being pressured, like you said, you guys were the first ones. I mean, that that's a huge advantage for you because a lot of these people, you know, that are probably going to listen to this that are hunting whitetails are like, yeah, that just doesn't happen where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get it. I yeah. mean, pressured public land deer are a different tough. game. They're, it's tough. I'm I'm not trying to say that this was anything like that. I mean, pressured oh, yeah. public land mule deer, pressured public land elk is, is my forte, and I know what that's about. So, <laughs> And there's, you know, when you're going four states away, it, it pays to have somebody there doing some homework for you or get some access. Yeah. And you can do the same thing elk hunting. You know, if you can sure. find a ranch to especially a cow elk hunt, if you're going to draw one out of state, see if you can, you know, make a couple phone calls and find just access. You don't even have to hunt on, on the ranch. If you can just access some national forest through a ranch, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's easy. It, they don't hand that out all day long for a reason, but you find those spots or you look at a map and you figure out, hey, I'm going to hike all the way around this ranch where there's no roads. You're going to really quickly stumble upon where the game's at because they're responding to the pressure. They're going, They're moving away from that pressure. Yeah, absolutely. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So they're going to move. But no, that's great. So, you know, one big difference between the Western style hunting that I do and back there is I didn't really have any shots. I set my first stand up and I could have had some 40 yard shots, but they were, you know, one or two small lanes out. You know, when I'm hunting out West here, Patrick, there's a lot of times it's 40, 50 and even 60 yard shots. And I know guys are like getting big eyes and what? Wait a second. Well, I've got 120 yard static range at my house and i routinely practice at that range in the wind yes <laughs> in the wind but i don't justify i mean my max yeah. distance is 55 yards yep. and it doesn't matter how far i practice my max distance is that because that's that four inch group you know i i shoot a four to five inch group at 55 yards and routinely can do that and feel very confident at that distance but i shoot a lot so for our listeners out there is if you're trying to figure out what is my max effective range with my particular firearm draw a four inch circle on your target and just keep moving back and shooting you know three or five round groups and once you pull one shot off that group that's your distance and it's the the other way you could look at that mentally is take a 12 inch target and just keep shooting at it shooting at it shooting at it till you miss the 12 inch target and then cut that distance in half because 12 inches is kind of the vitals but if you cut that in half you're now increasing your chances of success and i don't care if you can hit a pie plate at 2,000 yards great that makes your your effective yard i'm not a big long range proponent i can't shoot that far kudos to the guys that can but you know i think no matter what you're hunting with wherever you're at i don't care if you're using a pickup you need to calibrate it you need to be effective and you need to know what your range is. So that's that's one of the big differences is the other thing when you're hunting out west here, typically you're on the same elevation as the animal. It might be uphill or downhill slightly, but typically you're on the same side hill, right? Or you might be shooting way steep high or way steep low. But when you're whitetail hunting, you're always at a steep down at you're you're up the tree. Mm-hmm. And shot placement on the when you when you take and put that severe angle on that that makes your your window for shooting over or shooting under you now don't have a 
a 12 inch tall target, you now have about a four inch wide target. And that's, you get out, you get too high or too low and you're talking either wound or complete miss. So, you know, I get it that why the whitetail guys want to have those 20 and 30 yard shots. And one thing to really pay attention to and look at, I see guys putting tree stands 35 feet up a tree. I mean, I, I got to get out of the wind column and I got to do this and do that. Well, you're now every, every foot you go higher, you're making your shot angle circle around your tree where you can be effective smaller and smaller and smaller. I was 12 feet up a tree. That buck came and I mean, he looked kind of up at the tree, but the tree was all behind me and the tree was wider than I was. And I held, you know, super still while he looked up at me. Again, I wasn't hunting a pressured deer. I was hunting a a private land deer, not a public land deer, but still it wasn't, if I would have moved, he would have ran off. Yeah, and each tree in each situation is going to be kind of a, a custom deal. I mean, you know, depending on where you're at, right? I mean, your your cottonwood tree is going to be different than you know somebody else's oh, birch yeah. tree or oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying don't hang your tree wherever you're hanging it, but have a reason to justify why yeah, you're doing it, yeah. right? Just maximize like, your spot. Why am I using this pound test, not that pound test? Right. Why am I using a treble hook, not a single hook? Why sure. am I using this bait over it? You know, why are we fishing this side of the lake, not that? If, as long as you have a reason, and sometimes, you know, we figure out some of this stuff by trial and error. Hey, I oh, tried yeah. that spot or I tried that hook and I've lost several. I'm going away from that. Yep. Or you're like, I didn't think this would work. And man, that was great. <laughs> Those are always the better ones. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then yeah. this was the first trip that I ever tagged out day one. And I, I'm going back and forth that. And now I've decided that I would prefer to tag out the last evening of the last day of hunting because then you get the full enjoyment. And because I was tagged out, I felt a little bit of a pull called to come home well you got your deer come home and get back to work i'm like going on this hunt wasn't i mean harvesting a deer was secondary it was a bonus going on the hunt was going on the fishing trip the the night of the election it was i'm just gonna remove myself from the situation and go immerse myself in nature so i'm yeah i would i would much rather i mean in in my mind the perfect hunt is we plan two days or 10 days or 20 days and the last evening before I have to go home. So I still have time to do everything I need to. I'm not rushed is get it the last evening and, and feel that there's this level of accomplishment that you've stuck with it. You've stuck it out. You've worked really hard. So, and I mean, I got to stay and those other guys, they, they hunted hard. They passed up some smaller bucks, you know, probably some two-year-olds. And the one guy had his trad bow and messed up on that bigger buck that was in that timber, right? And when I say bigger, I'm, I, we're talking like 170 class. So Oof. I'm excited to go back and see if he's in there and get yeah. first crack at it again. And so we'll do we'll do Missouri 2.0. And, you know, worst case scenario, I'm going to take some pictures of some squirrels and some birds, and I'm going to just watch the sunset from a tree stand and have the wind in my face. Enjoy nature and do a little de-stressing in a, in a tree and just watch the beautiful nature around you. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, the bonus would be some more deer heart. Yeah. Deer yeah. heart dinner. More protein. Nothing better than that. So that's my that's my thoughts on whitetail hunting, some of the differences, you know, and like I said, yeah, there's there's some minute differences. The mm-hmm. species, the things you do are different, but the biggest thing is is to really just justify why you're doing that that way. And the one thing out west here, you know, I get I leave the pickup and I just kind of put the wind in my face and I start walking. And I walk and I walk and I walk and you got to be in shape. And I'm not as good a shape as I should be to to be a hardcore Western hunter. But back there, you know, mostly what it is is pick, pick the stand for the wind and you, you just walk in and sit for that wind. But, you know, because we were using self-climbers and even when I was filming, there was some ladder stands set up and I went with the other the other guys to film for them. 
Well, we didn't have two stands set up, so I would climb up the ladder stand with my climber on my backpack and my backpack, get up there, set the ladder stand set the self climber in the same tree four to six feet higher than the ladder stand and that way i could be filming right over the shooter's shoulders and we had, we had some close calls and it was fun but i mean physically every morning i'm i got a full backpack and a, a tree stand on my back every day so just because you're back east doesn't mean you don't need to be in shape <laughs> that's going to allow you to get you know into some of these spots that are instead of 300 yards from the truck maybe you're going to go a mile and a half down a ridge down a logging road up another ridge and set up in a spot where nobody's hunting and Those are the places you got to start looking. And one thing I learned is a lot of guys back there don't, they don't quarter, they don't skin, they don't do that in the field. And a lot of it is like the DNR requires you have to check in a whole deer. And I kind of understand that, but if I had to check in a whole elk, Patrick, (laughs) you'd be screwed. (laughs) I'd be way more selective at where I shoot them things. So, oh yeah, where you hunt, there's no way. Yeah, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you got that checked off the list. So, done white tail is going you know the the one thing is he's he's a nice white tail and my wife doesn't quite you know she's used to the other trophies in the house which are Mm -hmm. phenomenal she looks at she goes well that's just a deer you just need to you need to just plaque mount that one i'm like no that's my first white tail i've been waiting we're gonna (laughs) so when that shoulder mount (laughs) shows up david might be in trouble again because i don't know if there's room for it but well my favorite's the kudu We'll have to talk about the kudu one of these days, but the kudu is the coolest looking one in my opinion. That's, and and we, we will talk about it, but that that was similar to this and the fact that, you know, I grew up watching Sportsman Channel Saturday morning uh-huh. and they're always shooting them kudu. And oh, I said, man. I got to go find one of them. They're so, so cool looking. They are. And we, we, we will do a, an African special. So yeah, that will be, be coming up. That'd be fun. Well, everybody, again, thanks for joining us at Radcast Outdoors. Definitely go to our Facebook page. We've got some different posts on different shows, recipes, all kinds of fun stuff going on all the time. We've got an Instagram, so check that out. And then, of course, radcastoutdoors.com. High Mountain Seasoning. High Mountain Seasonings. By the way, I use the Buckboard Baking Cure, and I used one of the guys that works there, Edgar. He's great guy he gave me this recipe for doing hams and so over the last two weeks i cured and smoked my own hams from the pigs we raised this year and boy you talk about delicious and very aromatic (laughs) i followed the instructions for Mm. my hams and used the same buckboard baking cure picked it up here right from high mountain and we haven't we haven't tried it yet but they look and smell delicious oh man I had it in the smoker, and the dog was drooling at the door. I was drooling at the door waiting for it. I was like, oh, man, that looks really good. That's some good stuff, really good stuff. So definitely go check out High Mountain Seasonings as well. And uh, we'll come back next time and do another fun show for you.